Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. There's evidence of ancient cultures, known and unknown, around the planet. And each year we have new discoveries and more clarification as to what the ancient people have left us. There is no greater anomaly from the past than the Nazca lines of Peru, these unusual geoglyphs that were virtually unknown until we could fly over the large desert of Nazca to see these geoglyphs shaped like animals, insects, and most recently, human beings. Today we discuss the Nazca lines. Who carved them? What's their message? And what are their meaning? All this in the news with Bruce Fenton on Earth Ancients. Saturday, October 16th, 2021. This is Earth Ancients. I'm your host, Cliff Dunning. I was checking our uh, log of podcasts over the last uh, six years. That's about 450 individual podcasts. And I discovered that we hadn't had anybody talking about the Nazca lines in Peru. And all these different people I've had on are, you know, based on their research or their books. And uh, even Eric Van Donegan, when he wrote Chariots of the Gods, presents a whole section, a whole chapter on his belief of what the uh, Nazca lines are and, and who created them. Now, whenever we talk about Eric Van Donegan or Erich Van Denken, if you want to present his name in German... <laughs> believes that these are only seen from craft entering the Earth's atmosphere. And in his opinion, many of them are landing strips. They're massive animals, which they are, insects and so on, that represent different places on the Earth. And, uh, I mean, he's gone on record of saying that uh, uh, the only way they could have created them is if they were in craft self-propelled craft uh, hovering uh, above the uh, 
Earth. Now, remember, Chariots of the Gods was written in 1968, and uh, you know the scientific community hadn't really said much about the Nazca lines. It was confusing as, as uh, anyone could predict as to why they were created, because frankly, there's no way you can see the uh, geoglyphs, the animals, the birds, the insects, and people now. They found people uh, cutting the line. Unless you're floating above the uh, uh, atmosphere or the, or the uh, sky, you cannot tell that these you know, uh, huge figures are even there unless you're above. So he was the first one to present the Nazca lines from the perspective of ancient astronauts. And this is one of these uh, areas that I uh, am very, very curious about. Uh, and I also believe that, you know, remember uh, the, the current dating is about 3,000 years for the, uh, in the past for the Nazca lines. But it's one of these things where I'm even uh, curious there have been uh, proposed by various anthropologists that, that they had balloons that they floated <laughs> in the ancient past. And this is how they did it. They uh, uh, had balloons uh, hovering over the ground and somebody up in the balloon was directing the artwork that can be seen below. But I... I am uh, of the belief that these go much further back than 3,000 years. And uh, the civilization that did build them very uh, much, I mean, they must have had some form of propellant or some craft. It's funny, when you look at Peru, I mean, how they did it, we don't know. It's a time prior to our current history. uh, And there's so much more. I mean, you know, the, the idea that they were created on the ground and that the the local people, the Nazca people stood on nearby hills and overlooked it. That's just insane because you still can't see uh, a great deal of the design. And also the hills are so far away from the actual flat desert plains that they would have to have walkie talkies or something. So very, very curious. Now today, my guest is part of a consortium of scientists and research investigators who have taken another approach to Nazca and the Nazca lines. Their belief is it's an ancient map. And we're going to hear the specific details of why they believe it's a map. And these are not uh, casual observers. These are scientists, geologists, and others who have collectively come up with a hypothesis. And by the way, I read a a paper they wrote that was submitted to uh, the Graham Hancock website. I will post it on the Facebook page for you to read. But uh, they've also published in scientific journals and haven't gotten a lot of pushback. But the reason is that they describe this huge map. And as you'll hear today, uh, they don't get into the particulars as to uh, how it was created, <laughs> which gets us to you know technology beyond what we think uh, was available uh, pre-flood, pre-diluvian, pre-Younger Dryas, uh, the previous people that are a part of Earth Ancients and a part of many of the authors who we have on the show. These uh, ancient people, I believe, 
had technology probably as sophisticated or more so than we have today, including, yes, self-propelled craft. So uh, I have a short primer here. I, I have a, a three-minute documentary that is somewhat orthodox, but it gives you a sense of just how unusual these lines are, the Nazca lines, and what the orthodoxy believes is the current reason for their creation. Uh, and if you really listen closely, you'll hear that they don't have a clue as to how they were created. And they leave it up to you, the uh, listener, uh, as to co- to come up with your own ideas behind it. This is, is I mean, this is a, a serious anomaly. You have a you know a massive thirty square mile plane, a gigantic drawing pad that's been covered with these geoglyphs, animals, uh, insects, people. But the big and most important decode is these lines, and where these lines lead from Nazca to the rest of the world is the real big question. And you'll hear with our guest today that most of the major lines connect with Stonehenge, with ancient Egypt, with a, they intersect with ancient, ancient sites, uh, megalithic construction, and even places that may not be around anymore. So fascinating topic. So let's have a quick listen on... Uh, the explanation for the Nazca Lines. The Nazca Lines are an internationally famous series of massive geoglyphs located in Peru. In the 1930s, air travel, particularly passenger planes, became far more common, and as routes stretched across the globe like a spider's web, passengers began to notice these giant geoglyphs in the Nazca Valley and became curious as to what they were. With public interest came the interest of anthropologists, and they soon set out to see how these things were made. The process was relatively simple. By scraping away the reddish-brown iron oxide crust of the desert, thin white lines could be created with relative ease. These lines were soon surveyed, and maps were produced of the entire region. It turned out that these geoglyphs were far more expansive, detailed, and fascinating than previously thought. But the question was, why were they created in the first place? As is often the case with monumental archaeology, it did not take long for some to point to the stars and invoke constellations at Nazca. This is the constellation of Orion, and for some researchers, Orion is represented at Nazca by the giant monkey with its spiralling tail. This is probably not the best explanation, as often these drawings don't match up with observable stars. For others, it was not the reason, but the process which was fascinating. For these researchers, the Nazca lines are proof positive that the Nazca people had access to flight technology, probably hot air balloons. How else could these giant designs be inscribed on the desert floor, they say? Some go further still and claim that the Nazca lines can only have been produced by beings with superior technology, better even than our own. The geoglyphs represent messages, maps, or even landing strips for the express use of UFOs and beings from other worlds. As proof, they point to designs which bear an uncanny resemblance to modern pop culture references for aliens, or even halfway around the world to Aboriginal art in Australia. Needless to say, these ideas are not counted as mainstream archaeology. 
This part of Peru is famous for its well-preserved mummy burials, often sitting crouched with a cloth wrapped around them. This cloth gives rise to one of the more bizarre explanations for the Nazca lines. Some believe that they represent giant looms for weaving massive balls of yarn. From this yarn, the Nazca people could weave their famous cloth. However, it has been demonstrated that people don't need a loom the size of a large village to create wonderful cloth. Perhaps one of the more compelling explanations for the Nazca lines is that people in this part of the world respect the value of and depend upon water and sources of water. When this water disappears, they notice it more quickly than some. There is some evidence that there was indeed a great drought, and areas which would have been relatively lush suddenly dried up, and often the Nazca lines follow dried up riverbeds. According to this explanation, the people were quite literally pointing to former sources of water and begging the gods for intervention. They would process the lines and ingest hallucinogenics in order to commune with the spirits of the gods, often in the form of an animal. A relationship between the Nazca lines and sources of water such as mountains has been shown, and for many archaeologists this remains the most compelling explanation. No one yet claims, however, to fully understand the reasons behind the Nazca lines, and perhaps we never will. They remain rightly famous, though, and, in this light, perhaps are best seen as a towering achievement of human endeavour. Now, you can actually go down to Peru and rent a plane and fly over the top of the Nazca Plains, Nazca Desert, and actually see uh, most of the major geoglyphs from an elevated position. And uh, I haven't done this yet, but uh, I'm told that it's it's wondrous how they did this, how, how they were able to measure and actually create these uh, these figures. You know, and, and, and our current science tries to explain how they were made, but not very successful. So here we go again. Unknown science, unknown likely technology involved in creating a very simple grouping of geoglyphs, but although simple, unknown as to how they were, you know, there's no known uh, explanation for how they were created and if they align uh, with other monuments. Now, most alternative researchers are the ones who are coming up with the ideas this team of scientists that we're presenting today, part of the Nazca line uh, group, will tell us about their uh, explanation. I think there's also some scientists that have looked at this, alternative scientists, uh, not from any university, that have said that some of the glyphs line up to planetary systems. And I don't know specifically uh, what constellations they are talking about but i kind of vaguely remember hearing about that but today is a completely different animal and this is nazca lines as a map as a central focus point listen real carefully about their belief as to how they were created and uh, the resulting uh, link up with the ancient past on our podcast today Earth Ancients and the Nazca Lines. 
Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're checking in with our science editor. That is Bruce Fenton, and Bruce is in England. And today uh, we are talking about some new research found in uh, El Salvador. There's a pyramid appears to have been constructed using volcanic ash, and uh, it's kind of a, a twist on how the Maya built their pyramids. So, hey, Bruce, welcome. How you doing? Thank you very much. Yeah, doing very well. Yeah, doing very well. Thanks. Great. So. Yeah, I'm doing good. All right. Hey, let's talk about this discovery. Uh, it's unique because uh, it looks like uh, they built a, a pyramid and then they abandoned it and then they came back and enhanced it with ash. Talk a little bit about, about what they discovered. Yeah, this is an interesting one. It's, um, this is down in El Salvador. And I don't, I don't think we've covered uh, much to do with the, you know, the Mayan culture down in El Salvador, which is no. nice. To, we're taking a little trip down that way. <laughs> this is in the Zapatitan Valley, and uh, the Mayan city actually called the San Andres. Mm -hmm. So it's not one I'd heard of before. But the settlement basically arose around 900 BC. So it was, uh, it was kind of existed for several centuries. Uh, it reached its main kind of pinnacle between 600 to 900 AD. But what they are focused on here is a, an, you know, a really astonishing event, a, a massive volcanic eruption that occurred and really um, sort, of, sort of obliterated most of the, the area around the city and you know, impacted the city itself. Hmm. And for some time they've been trying to work out exactly when that happened. They, they now seem to understand that the, the best analysis based on materials recovered from lower layers um, suggests that this eruption um, was underway somewhere around 545 to 570 AD. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they know that because they used, you know, somebody came back to the city 
uh, after this, you know, after a period of it being kind of abandoned, and then used the these you know, the material that was on site from the volcano, this volcanic ash, they actually used that to construct this new pyramid. And they, they tend to think that there may have been, you know, a particular kind of almost like a reverence for that volcanic material, you know, that some association with it being oh, you know, important. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as you can kind of imagine, you know, you know, obviously it's come from out of the earth, it's, you know, out the, the fires of the volcano um, being seen as in some way, you know, a special material to be used in this pyramid. So it's kind of yeah, quite quite fascinating from that angle as well that you know they went out of their way to kind of build a volcanic pyramid, um, but yeah, they they're not sure on the exact dates of how long after it, you know, after the event that it happened, but they think probably about five to thirty years later, but with a maximum of eighty years, and kind of again the assumption that that this may have been you know the next generation kind of the, of the same people coming oh, back and re-inhabiting okay. it. But they they kind of open to the idea that this could be a separate group of people that have kind of you know stumbled on this abandoned city and moved into it. But yeah, that's that's a uh, belief of uh, Richard Hansen, who's excavating El Mirador. Is that the different uh, the pre-classic classic are all separated by six hundred to a thousand years, and then the people that come back just repopulate. Re, uh, what mm-hmm. is the uh, form of um, volcanic ash did they form them into bricks is it a, a layer of pack on the existing uh, how is it applied yeah actually some of it is cut blocks so there's different volcanic tephra identified in several areas but it looks like you know that it's really quite good pictures and you've got some construction where they show fill um which is in the late classic period but they also showing there's um you know the construction floor shown, which is the late classic period and there's different you know so there's different areas with different types of use of the stone um they got to be quite good pictures here and you can look through the layers they show you different layers but yeah these were mostly cut into blocks so they got cut stone and then fill underneath okay. um so yeah i mean that's obviously shown i know i'm sort of saying from the picture but yeah so a lot of it is cut and some of it's used in different ways okay i'm going to post this on the facebook page go to facebook go to Earth Ancients group, use that word group, and you'll see this under this week's banner uh, and the, the uh, link to the podcast. Uh, archaeologists excavated Mayan pyramid made from volcanic rock and, uh, and the Mayan city of San Andreas is, uh, is the uh, subtitle. All right, this is a good one. Any last thoughts on this, Bruce? Oh, just to, to be honest, uh, yeah, it's quite extraordinary to to sort of hear about this kind of really unique pyramid. I mean, it'd be interesting to find out more and perhaps hopefully they might find some, you know, other finds around the area that give us some clues to what they, whether they considered the volcanic connection, you know, particularly important. Yeah. Good one. All right. Uh, excellent. And we'll talk to you next week. Thank you very much. Take care. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. can't think of a uh, episode where we talk about the Nazca lines. I've been fascinated with these uh, geoglyphs for decades. Tremendous controversy. We can go back to 30 years ago when Eric Von Donegan said that they were landing places for the ancient aliens, uh, and that's been somewhat disproved. But there's so much we don't know about the Nazca Lions, and my guest today has taken a look at it from a a different perspective that makes it really compelling. And the theme today is the Nazca Great Map, but even more specific, this being a world map from a different look, from a different point of view. My guest today is Frank Magnaloni. And he is a has a background in biological sciences, but he also has a passion uh, for cartography or map making that makes his look and his team look at this as a unique phenomenon. So uh, we're going to hear from him, his point of view today, and uh, his research, which is very dedicated. By the way, I found his article on the Graham Hancock website many months ago. And it's been back and forth, back and forth. And we finally have Frank on the program. So, Frank, welcome to Earth Ancients. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, let's start from the beginning. What are the Nazca Lines? Where are they located? Okay, so the Nazca Lines are located on the Nazca Plateau, which is in the Atacama Desert. The Atacama Desert is uh, reputed to be the oldest or one of the oldest deserts on Earth because it formed when the Andes rose and started stopping the clouds from passing over to their western side, yeah. thus forming what they call a hyper-arid, a very thin hyper-arid region of the Earth that is known to be the driest place on the Earth. So I would say that at first as a location of where you find this largest of uh, graphical designs ever drawn, you could say, it is a very unique location on our planet because a planet is two-thirds, three-quarters the surface covered by water. Everything changes on the planet. Even the tectonic plates get recycled back into the core, according to right to mm-hmm. current theory. 
And so nothing really, you could say, lasts forever in such a dynamic planet like Earth. The Nazca Plateau, you could say, is the anomalous extreme of that, the driest, uh, most, least dynamic place on the Earth. So so, uh, stagnant, so stable that you could draw a line on the ground and it would outlast the pyramids in theory because you would never have rain falling on it. Yeah, you, it has a, a blanket of warm air that rises from it because it gathers the heat from the sun. It's iron oxide. So the wind is actually quite quieted once you go, like, say, below the knees. So it's uh, there's no mummification happens automatically there. It's the only place on Earth where you don't have to mummify uh, a corpse. Right. The there there are archaeological digs there when you go visit our open pit, meaning you walk through the ancient cemetery and they just have an open pit and you can see the mummified remains because they're desiccated. They're completely dry. Hmm. So it would seem like a very unique place, you know, perhaps, especially if you want to leave behind uh, a very large design, right. That you don't want disturbed or altered in time. Right. That is what I would say is, is, the the Nazca Plateau. I uh, I haven't been to this that part of Peru, but uh, it's very odd because there's a there's an unusual. Uh, I think it's called the uh, uh, Candle Opera. Yes, that, that faces the ocean. That is a has been there, and it's very anomalous in its, it's design. It's very anomalous, and that is basically almost telling you that the Nazca Plateau is beyond it. So yeah. that is one of the dots on the images of the map that, that okay. I sent to you. Right. That okay. is one of the many sites that one finds underneath the path of the great circles of the, of the map. So I want to tell people real quickly, uh, Frank, that the theme of your paper is the, uh, let's see, the NAS, what's it called? I just had it in front of me. Uh, oh, the Nazca Great Circle Map Hypothesis. Exactly. And this is you and your team began working on this hypothesis. Did you take the uh, noted um, Maria Reich uh, material and include it in your research? In she's the one that she's yes. basically the one uh, the, who came up with the the left side of the map. Believe yeah. it or not. So when you see the picture, as I send to you, of the, these are the lines of Nazca and the glyphs. Mm-hmm. They're not all the glyphs are there, just the ones I've covered so far that we've covered so far in, in the work, by the way. Okay. There's actually, yeah, so we're like a glyph 20, right, following a procedure of putting them in the right place and showing what they represent cartographically, mm-hmm. right? But there's more than there. But in theory, all the lines are there, right? There's about 83 lines of Nazca that come from only five locations. And that each of those lines represents a great circle and that you're meant to see that two-dimensional plateau design and convert it into a three-dimensional globe with these great circles. And that that's when you the pattern on the earth that the ancients have made. Meaning only when you, when you convert the 2D into a 3D projection where you're looking at a globe on a computer animator program like mine or... Or if you, you know, put a rubber band around a globe, right, sitting on your desk uh, to make a great circle, then that's when it becomes apparent 
that you have, for example, in one straight line going from Easter Island through Giza and through the temples in Southeast Asia and through Petra and through Ur and Eridu, the cities in Mesopotamia and through Mohenjo-Daro, all in one straight line. That's not very readily noted when one looks at the world in a Mercator flat projection. Yeah. Because there, a great circle, which makes a straight line that returns to its origin, there a great circle shows up as a sine wave. So if one stares a lot only at Mercator projections, your mind wouldn't readily realize that there's, for example, a great circle that connects 80% of the cradles of civilization in one straight path. Okay. Before we get into the specifics on where these lines go, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the orthodox views of uh, Maria Reich, who basically was the caretaker. Her her theories and uh, hypothesis basically are what is used today by orthodoxy, which is these uh, geoglyphs uh, were cut just below the surface. As you gave us, uh, as you outlined in the very beginning of our program, it's very dry and hot in this desert. So you cut into the ground and it's going to stay there for thousands of years. But what do you, what is the belief uh, on a date that these geoglyphs and these lines were created? Well, so standard archaeology, I assume, would date it to whenever the oldest um, pottery that they find there, carving yeah. dates do. I yeah. believe that they're saying something like even as late as. 700 BC or something like that. Yeah. I We don't hold to that ourselves because of the fact that, meaning to us who have tested it as a great circle pattern, right? Uh, it is a map and therefore it has to precede the things you find in lines that chance could not result in. Yeah, I mean, you bring yeah. up these mega so sites yeah, so, 7,000 so, years old. Yeah, so. so I would say the standard is that it's that it's basically an AD, right? It is what the standard archaeologists. I think Maria Reich, in testing it with the Smithsonian people at, at for stellar alignment with precession, means that she was willing to consider that it was much, much older than that. Otherwise, if you didn't... If, you know, to agree with the Smithsonian to run a statistical experiment to see if there's alignment with the with the constellations using precession means that you think it could be as old as 10,000 years older than that. And you're keeping an open mind. So I think that yeah. she was a rebel. Right. She was a rebel because she was saying that it's definitely something technical, such as an astronomical, an astronomical thing, whereas the standard archaeologists weren't giving credit to the local populations as being, you know, capable of uh, doing an astronomical calendar or something along those lines. So, exactly. And the, and the thing is, the, is that if it is um, as technical as you uh, claim it is, and, and in your paper, you make it fairly sophisticated, uh, using carbon dating for the most recent civilization isn't a way to measure the age. And this no. is the this is the problem we run into with conventional science, uh, I should just say archaeology, is that they use the most uh, recent data to date these 
ancient sites, and it's just not possible. I, I I agree with you there. Meaning, okay, some of these these places are so enigmatic that you can imagine that if you found them, if you found the pyramids thousands of years after they were built, you would camp there. So it would be something that you know that you might gravitate towards, and especially since they happen to be at the mouth of the longest river on earth. And so you're, it's going to be a, a focal point for civilization, no matter what, right. being on the mouth of, of the Nile River, or whether you say also because they are there, it, you know, people gather in the places, you know, in these old enigmatic locations. So, yeah, uh, carbon dating something doesn't necessarily give you the date of the creators of that thing. Before we get into your line and map theory, let's talk about what uh, evidence that uh, Reich uh, pulled together. You hinted before we started that she has a cosmological attachment to a lot of the the figures that are uh, laid out in this uh, in this uh, uh, plain, this desert. Um, do we have any uh, more recent data that shows that this is a possibility that she did find alignment of, say, a, a certain group of the figures, the geoglyphs, with star constellations? Yes. I actually don't think that the two theories are uh, mutually exclusive, as they say, because, for example, when when she's saying that the locals call the spider uh, Orion, and the spider is rather central, actually, to the design, right? Yeah. And um, when you were, when you're saying, you know, can you, as a map maker, can you have a symbol that represents something about direction for the great circles, and at the same time, s- roughly fits constellations? Because remember, constellations aren't like this perfectly outlined, um, connect the dot, uh, right? Figure, right? Uh, absolutely. And meaning in, in our work ourselves, we found that the geoglyphs have two purposes. The first purpose is to orient you generally. So, for example, you take the llamas, right? The geoglyph of the llamas, that's going to be, well, that's got to be basically the Nazca area. Why? Because llamas are endemic, right, to the Andes region. So they must be indicating roughly the local area where you found this map assign to this llamas area. Okay. Right. In, in a similar way, because if you don't know what language we're going to speak thousands and thousands of years later, it's actually a very clever code because, you know, you don't have to write kangaroo. You just put a picture of a kangaroo and you know, it must be Australia. Yeah. For example. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I'd like to, you know, remind everyone that had we not found the Rosetta stone, the, we wouldn't know very much about Egypt except for the structures. We would be missing, you know, a lot of information of our oldest civilization that we know existed, that was the longest lasting, that built the most enigmatic monuments, mm-hmm. and without one piece of stones, Yebe called the Rosetta Stone, we'd still be in the dark about a lot of... I know, that was a right. great find. Yeah. yeah, so I think that's why they put a language, they use the language for the map of animal geoglyphs, because you will always know that the llamas belong in the Andes Mountains. So let me just ask you something real quickly. Uh, There are certain constellations and star systems that have 
names. Uh, do we know if any of the geoglyphs align to any of the known constellations that have animal or insect or uh, individual well, names? The spider and Orion, I know that. From yeah, yeah, but I that, mean, anything that, else? Um, I do not know. No, I do that. I know. No. Okay. But I'm, but I think there are meaning other people have matched, right? Glyphs with constellations and said, look, this roughly looks like this. And so, and I'm saying I wouldn't argue with them because it really yeah. could be right. Because, because like I was saying, so like the, it, it uses the, the map uses the glyphs to give you a general idea of a certain part of the world. So right. That you, right. But it also, in part three, called the geoglyphic code that we have, for example, on our webpage. And I tried to send some pictures in a collage as the as the last image that I sent you. Okay. Where basically what happens is if you then if you now have the 3D in front of you and you say, well, look, this geoglyph touches this line on the map. Then you go to the great circle on the 3D on Google Earth and you go and look right where that glyph touches that line you suddenly realize that the bathymetry, that the shape underneath the water matches the shape of the geoglyph. Wow. Okay, so that's, that's under pretty. geoglyphic code in the webpage, in the NASCA solution. I, I didn't read enough of that, but... Right, right. That, but, that's kind of... Before, we, but, but, yeah, before we go on, I just want people that are listening to understand that Maria Reich was a German, I believe she was a mathematician, uh, who spent, I think, like, decades out and began mapping these geoglyphs in the uh, this Peruvian desert. And she got very, very upset when Eric Van Donegan uh, claimed that the, uh, the geoglyphs, the Nazca lines were from ancient aliens. And she got upset because he immediately uh, thought that whoever had designed this, uh, whole menagerie of animals and, and insects and, and figures uh, were aliens. Now, I don't believe that's true. And I think since that came out, I mean, that was like decades ago, he made that claim. But I had to ask you, uh, Frank, we have to, I, I want your consideration before we talk about your research uh, on who would be sophisticated enough to create these geoglyphs. And I'll, we'll take it one step further. And your hypothesis is that they are the tip of the iceberg for the rest of these uh, uh, lines that intersect in different parts of the world. I would think that although we don't want to acknowledge too much uh, uh, craft flying in the earth, I think we have to acknowledge a very for high form of uh, technology involved in the creation of the not only the glyphs, but the lines. And I want you to talk a little bit about your belief of who these individuals were, what culture they were, and the level of, of technology they would have to uh, possess to create not only the glyphs alignment to cosmology, but also your hypothesis of them being a giant map. I would have to say that I always... Choose the minimum. We at the now. Yeah. <laughs> don't go to a minimum, right. Bobby. Choose the minimum necessary because yeah. we don't like to. Right, we don't like to over speculate or jump the gun. Right, 
So it would seem to me that you would have to at minimum be something akin, but with some parts more advanced. My, you know, I want to put in that clause with some parts more advanced, but something akin to where we were when we first discovered electricity. Now, rem I remind you that it's only been a hundred and a bit more years since we were just riding in carriages, had no electricity, had no satellite, like it happened quickly for us, right? Like meaning you reached us, we reached a threshold where suddenly, right? Boom, there we were with Tesla and Edison and boom, boom, and Maxwell. This is all in the early 1900s that Maxwell's equations determine the speed of light and boom, boom, boom. And we're still catching up to some of those thoughts and ideas from the turn of last century. <laughs> Do you remember meaning Einstein is, yeah, they're talking quantum mechanics in 1930s, 40s, 50s. Yeah. Right. And here we are, right? And so that happens. Imagine if you want to stretch it out, say 200 years. So I want you to imagine a civilization in the Ice Age. Okay. So imagine a civilization back by the Younger Dryas. Okay. So 8,000 BC, 11,000 BC, whatever. Back at the furthest point in time, pre-Gobleki Tepe, like Gobleki Tepe and before. Right? Okay. Yeah. And that it suddenly, you know, that it, that it is a, a very original civilization. It's a grows up enduring this witnessing this chaos of the as the glacial maximum passes, and as whatever event occurs, whatever event occurs that might be that meteor strike that Graham Hancock covers in his last work, right? Right. Yeah. Right? That even make things worse, meaning making worse matters worse, right? In the middle of the ice age to have the younger dryas and even cold within the cold, mm -hmm. right? And all the havoc that seems to have occurred. And imagine that that civilization had just had its 200 years. Just right then by chance and under that pressure, it had just had its 200 years. So it had quickly, suddenly understood and in a moment of strain and it watches itself collapse right having reached but just reached that point now whoever survives that how do you think they're gonna feel what do you think they would do oh, uh, exactly I so it's reboot what, it's, i think yeah. that is a likely scenario for what we see when we see these great works and these founders of civilization and this this other hand that seems to be uh um have been witnessed and recorded almost rumored and myth, myth in myth, right. Of yeah. these, uh, strangers, I think are, are the remnants of the lost civilizations gathering each other, sharing what they still maintain that was not erased and, and setting out in this global project to record what had occurred and to send us a warning across time. I think that is who they were, though I can't give you the exact details because it would be speculating, though, of course, one can't help but imagine almost every scenario as one seeks the, right? Where does it, where could it be? How could it have been? How so are you saying that the, in your opinion, the Nazca lines and the geoglyphs were a map left by the survivors of the great yes. 
deluge? Or are you saying that it was there before? No, as a I'm marker. Saying, I'm saying what you said first. Okay, so I'm they're, saying they're, that, yeah, I'm saying that they built these sites around the world and put them in great silker alignment, and that each site has lessons. So, for example, Giza is teaching you about the dimensions of the earth. It's 4,300, what is it? Yeah. Yeah. However many, however many times the exact scale of the earth and this and shows you pi and phi and, and, and it's all geared so that at the end you realize that they truly marked the earth, but it's kind of like this, you know, like a, a mind might look at the pyramid of Giza and see how it's got all these mathematical constants. And then you look at the pyramid of Mexico in Teotihuacan and and someone comes and tells you, did you know that they have the same surface area to their bases? Yeah. And you and your mind goes, what are the chances of that? That's pretty, you, you're right. right. That's a good point. Right. Yeah. And then they say to you, did you know that the pyramid of Teotihuacan, the, the pyramid of the sun in Teotihuacan is exactly half the height of the pyramid of Giza? And your mind would go, wow, that's. And so you consider these things and you go, it can't be by chance, but you can't easily design a scientific experiment to prove what your mind knows must be true. Okay, let me stop you right there. So we've already established that uh, there are uh, cosmological properties built into this map, into this the, the geoglyphs, uh, because it, it could be aligning to, to uh, constellations or whatever. According to Reich, right. Then According your- to Reich, but mind you, her experiment, like it, it did not yield any significant statistical results. Okay, so they did, they were never able to align any. Right, specific- they were never able to align it to the stars. She remained convinced that it was still highly specific and that these vectors pointed somewhere. Okay, some, somehow, right. So she okay. held to that, right? But didn't. No other theory was proposed. Okay. Right. So let, let's let's start talking about your work. So what I find brilliant, and we're going to talk about how the different characters align to different parts of the world because of their where they're from. Let's come to your uh, application, you and your team. Uh, how did you begin to think this could be a huge uh, global map? When did the aha moment? Arise. The aha moment happened as you know, as we're looking at the glyphs, at the at the at the figures, and realize that the llamas apply to where Nazca is itself. Mm-hmm. So then, that kind of it starts to roll with the concept of okay, what if these glyphs of animals are telling you a region of Earth? Yeah, let me just stop you real quickly, and you say, state this in your article: the llamas, the twin llamas, are kind of central to the whole configuration so that's where you're saying these are indigenous to peru and so this is kind of the beginning so of let's the yeah so let's say let's say that what they're indicating is that this region where the llamas are represents peru right and then you look a little bit to the to the to the east and south and you see the monkey with the spiral tail the famous monkey but then you realize that it's the monkey is drawn along with these very jagged lines that look like a range of mountains, right? Oh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's also in the image that I sent. I sent you one plate that is uh, the geoglyphs and, and, and what one calls them. So because you want to you wanna correctly identify, you know, so they got, everyone got the llamas correct. Everyone got the monkey correct. 
And it's true that if you go directly east, you will go over the jagged Andes Mountains and you will enter the rainforest where you will see spire, uh, spider monkeys, they're called, that look exactly like that and often stand with a spiral tail. And so it's kind of rolls like that. You suddenly realize, okay, but wait, if now I'm in the rainforest, what's this trapezoid that's up here that's got a dolphin underneath it? How could, what is this? And then suddenly one realizes, wait, if, that's, if that trapezoid rectangle represents the Amazon River, what's, and you put a dolphin, now a dolphin could be anywhere in the ocean if it's a, an, an ocean dolphin. But if your mind suddenly says, what if it's something endemic? Ah, the Amazonian river dolphin, rare indeed. And suddenly you go, that could be the Amazon River. So mm. it starts to kind of roll with itself because suddenly you say, okay, what's this bird here that most people call a condor? But if you look at it, it's not a condor. It doesn't have the bird of prey beak of a condor. It's got a thin beak. And suddenly, you know, I realize this is a willet and a willet represents the coast. So now you're on the coast of Brazil and you're about to cross in, into Africa. You're going to cross the Atlantic. So in other words, the animals biologically tell you where you are in the world. The goal is that using them, you can deduce, infer the exact location of the five points on the map where all that mesh of crazy lines comes from. Because if you look at the pattern, at first it looks like a net of lines that just drives you crazy. It, it seems to be chaotic. But if you look carefully, you will realize that all the lines, basically, the vast majority are coming from five locations. So that if you can determine what those five locations represent, where on earth they are, what, what are they, then you have yourself an angular map where you can launch all the lines by the angle. Be and, the, and, 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 you, and one thing that one realizes is that there's not all the lines are the same. They're the lines that connect those five points. So you have a mesh of lines that are coming from five points, but some lines are different because they're the lines that go from one point to the other. Those lines are the ones that you basically anchor on the earth. And then the other ones, you measure the angle and you send them out in three dimensions. And okay, so the, you, what you guys did is you plotted these lines. And by plotting them, your central or starting point is the Nazca Desert, the Atacama Desert. And so when did you begin following these lines and seeing... As soon, so as soon as... Because as remember, none of the lines are followed from Nazca. Nazca is like a map like you hold in your hand, just made really big and so that it will last. Okay. So imagine Nazca just a place where you went and found a map that you have in your hands. And that map says, go to Easter Island and draw this line. Go to the Amazon River mouth and draw these lines. Go to, the, to Cape Agulhas, the southern point, the southernmost point of the African continent and draw these lines. How do you, how do you speculate that they're saying to the observer that, okay, these lines start in Nazca, but you need to keep drawing a, a line so that they connect to East Rhine. No, no, no. They don't, none, no lines start at Nazca. At Nazca is as if, imagine Nazca as if it was an actual map, like a, a map that you hold in your hand. 
Okay. Okay. So no lines originate at Nazca. They're, the map of lines is drawn at Nazca. Okay. Oh, they're, they're but okay. the, right. But but it's telling you that it's a map of the whole world, meaning the radial center on on the left side of Nazca and the radial center on the right side of Nazca, where the lines are coming from. Those are it's saying those are the two opposite sides of Earth. Oh, interesting. Right. So it's the so, globe laid out in two dimensions. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. I didn't it get that. Globe. Exactly. It is a two D great circle representation of the whole world in five radials so that when you launch the, the, the great circles in 3D, you will notice that your cradles of civilization and ancient monuments that have attracted you and caused you awe and wonder are actually by design underneath these great circles of this blueprint. So it's their confession because see, like I was saying, if you're looking at the pyramid and then you realize that one in Mexico is half the height, your mind wants to tell you that something's going on, but you have no proof. If you were the people who did this, you would want us to be convinced. You would leave a confession, a blueprint of what you have done that you can test in order so that you would no longer argue with yourself. Because I remember that until we wrote the program that proved it, we kept wondering whether we were crazy or not, Cliff. Do you see what I'm saying? Right, because it's kind of like this. If I see a face in a tree or an eye in a tree, in the bark of a tree, can I, you know, is that really there is, is the question. There's a term for that, paranoia or something like yeah, that. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah. Whatever that is, where you see things into objects. Yeah, you know, when you see a pattern that's so subtle, but it's so, like, it, it, it implies so much. I didn't want to come out to the world, nor any of my companions, and say, hey, you know, we've got the map of the We see stuff, don't right. you? So the only way, because because in a sense, you know, you, the eye does get confused. You look at the lines, and you look at all the dots, and you go, well, is this by chance or not? How can it be by chance? And so then, you know, David writes a program that is what a standard null hypothesis experiment in any science, right? Where you're going to test it against randomness. Right. Okay. And so it, it launches random lines and sees what gets hit, compares them to our hypothesis that this is a map and these lines come from these locations and they go like this. And then it tests, therefore, what are the chances that you're going to find these ancient sites the oldest, most magnanimous sites on Earth, all, right? And it tests it. It's the random lines, same sites, then the Nazca lines, according to our theory, right? Same sites, same, same pyramids, same everything. And then it shows you randomness takes 44,000 times on average to yield something that approaches what the Nazca map approaches. Now, in science, once you have one in a thousand, you basically are statistically significant, meaning if randomness cannot replicate the pattern in a thousand times, it needs 44,000 times, you're looking at something that is not by chance, the pattern exists. Is, okay. Okay, yeah. yeah. And, and that's when, you know, uh, we became convinced ourselves in a, in a way, because otherwise... 
I, you know, we started feeling like crazy people that are saying, we got the map of the ancients. <laughs> you know, well, like- that's what I want to talk about that for a minute. Uh, before we get into how these lines intersect with ancient megalithic sites and ancient un- uh, cities known and unknown, this is what comes to my mind is that this civilization, let's say pre uh, younger Dryas, had a technology that uh, allowed them to see the earth from a global perspective, which means above the surface of the planet. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay. I would say that they had a knowledge that enabled them to at least imagine it, picture it, calculate it like that. Okay. I don't know if they had technology because, yeah. Yeah, we speculate that they perhaps had they a perhaps did, yeah. science they, that allowed yeah. them to fly above the planet. I'm not going to argue with you. I know you're not going to say that, yeah, but, but doesn't I it make it I a lot easier? I do not know, but I think that anybody that knows as much as you'd have to know to make the map might be able to do things like that. That okay. much I can say absolutely safely, meaning think about the fact that we're reading it only now. Because only now do I have these 3D representations. I live in a world where I'm born and my parents tell me the earth is round and this is a terrestrial globe. Okay. Right. So like I grow up with all the skills needed to even attempt to read such a to even notice As an amateur cartographer. Right. To, right. Exactly. Yeah. So so in a sense, uh, by definition, I don't know how much they had. But let me just ask you real quick, uh, Frank, before we move forward. It seems that you're uncomfortable with 
even speculating that there could have been a civilization that had vehicles that flew above the planet who it's uh, not that i'm uncomfortable i'm only uncomfortable in terms of connecting it to to nazca because we're trying to make it like ultra you know uh this is some like hardcore science. Please, you want to do the scientific we want method. The engineers, we want engineers and cartographers and people who are self-trained or or officially trained okay. in the scientific method to really look at our proof. Yeah. Right. Without hearing too much of our speculations, because in a sense, and to leave people to to kind of determine what, who, and why. Well, that's the big thing. Like, is right. That's the, the adventure for everybody else. It we is. What's say, the method and the and the and the madness of creating this? No, no, right, right. Like for sure, but like just by the fact that I'm telling you this is a world map, that says a lot, right? I mean, <laughs> that, that is that, pretty big, right? Yeah, because that's, that's already big. saying I'm claiming that these people definitely knew every corner of this planet. Yeah down to the Nazca plateau and its attributes that can make it last through eons. Yeah. Purposely left a blueprint of a design of structures that they made around the earth of the biggest things that engineers today say, I don't know if we could build Giza. Yeah. I don't know. They tell you. And, and, and I believe them. Right. And so that's saying a whole lot, but, but we don't want to say too much more than that in part, because we believe in the worth of, of reaching your own, like, we'll tell you what we know for sure. And yeah. then we, you're welcome to reach your own conclusions because each new, each new speculation is a hypothesis itself. But doesn't this fall into the Charles Hapgood maps? Of the Absolutely. It falls into it. I mean, he it, has these maps in his book that are made. Oh, you got it right there. He's got a couple of maps in there that were made before the ice hit this damn north. And we're saying that, right. Okay, so you believe? Yeah, so yeah, I'm saying that I'm saying that you know they. uh, So there's looking at portalins, which are what we call equidistant azimuthal projections. Okay, and and they're not completely uh, uh, unrelated to the Nazca. Mm -hmm. In a sense, you could call the Nazca Great Circle map the grandfather of such maps Mm -hmm. because it's Great Circle, meaning each line represents. A, a great circle, the shortest distance between points. On these maps that have good studies, only the lines coming from the center are great circles. The lines that are coming from the 32 or 16 wind roses on the edges of the map, right? Those represent curved lines. Okay. Not Right. So in a sense, a great circle portal in what you call a, no, a mnemonic projection right, is a fascinating story in itself because they say that it is the oldest projection, even though no example has ever been found. It was proposed by Thales of Greece, one of the seven sages, Thales, right? Some people say that he was the father of the scientific method itself. And he proposes, and in writing, we receive the concept that he proposes the mnemonic projection where every straight line represents a great circle. And the viewpoint is the center of the earth itself. That's the cartographic viewpoint of the mnemonic projection. But no one's ever seen one. I propose that the Nazca Plateau is that missing legendary mnemonic projection. Um, Before we get into an example of where these lines uh, uh, intersect and how you and your team plotted these lines, um, you, you basically are saying that this is a map. Uh, is there any 
place where there's any writing, I think I've heard some uh, examples or some suggestions that in various corners of the plateau, there's what looks to be writing or some kind of uh, hieroglyphics that haven't been uh, uh, disseminated yet. Do we know anything about Perhaps you're speaking of what they call the star glyphs, which are these um, stars made of cubes. Yeah. Okay. And this, you find the same thing, the same type of design at Tiwanaku carved into the stones. Ah, okay. Okay. And and I, we hold that they represent that they're saying this is a Portland map. This is a map of lines like that. Why? Mm. Because those stars made of cubes, right? When you draw out the radials from one, it seems to represent the eight wind system, which is the system covered that Hapgood is telling you of of lines coming from a center. So it almost seems to be an ancient international symbol for map is what seems to be carved up above the plateau. And then it's interesting that the other place you see the same symbol Mm-hmm. is the Chakana is also called, meaning the Andeans call it the Chakana cross. And it's a cross made that's carved into Tiwanaku, all right, at Pumapunku, right? You have, it's made out of little squares, okay? And in a way, the only other place you find it carved like that is in Tiwanaku, which happens to be the center of the map in a way, the, the center radial of the map. So it's kind of like they're leaving a symbol that's saying map of straight lines, here at Nazca, capital at Tiwanaku, by using the same symbol in both places. Okay, so now before we get into specifics, I want you to describe, and you did uh, a little bit briefly, how to use the map. Okay. Let's talk about how you use it. Yeah, so it's as simple as, you know, as you're going through the animals and finally it's, it's told you this is South America, right? Now you're in Africa. And so one interesting way that it does that is that it shows you uh, the Okavango River Delta, which is the only inland river delta on Earth. And that's what the picture that the glyph of the tree is. Most people say this is a tree. We say this is the Okavango River Delta. And it is in the region of the map that now you would be in Africa. So suddenly you realize, okay, so they're telling me that at the southernmost point of Africa, I have to put this radio center, this, this place where these lines come from. And what you realize is that Africa comes down to a point called Cape Agulas, Cape Needles, it means in Portuguese, okay? Cape Needles, because it narrows down to a point where you end up in a place where you can't go any further south and you cannot go east or west. Do you understand? Meaning if you go east or west, you're in the water. And if you go further south, you're in the water. Okay. So it brings the continent to a point at its southernmost point and says, from here, launch these lines. So is that, that's kind of what you could consider the key. In, in a sense, that's how you key it. Because in a sense, you have five points that you have to establish exactly where they are on Earth. One of them is the southernmost point of South Africa. Okay. The, the other one is Easter Island, a very small island in the middle of the Pacific, right? So we put it right at the middle of the island. One could argue, do you want to put it there or do you want to put it 
a few miles to the west where the statues are, the bigger statues of Orongo, well, that's for debate, but it's not going to change too much the, the aim of the map because a great circle around the earth moved over by five miles that is going to fly by many, many sites is not going to be statistically affected if you move it just a snudge one way or the other. Okay, so I'm going to give you I'm going to give you a scenario. You don't have to agree on this, but I'm just going to give it to you. Somebody comes from another planet, flies into the Earth's atmosphere, and they know there's a, there's some kind of geoglyph or something that tells them to go to the academia, uh, the uh, Peruvian desert. They they're uh, flying above several thousand feet in the atmosphere. They look down. Is there a universal language that gives them a hint that this is the starting point for finding ancient sites on the Earth? There is nothing on the map that tells you this is going to tell you ancient sites or meteors or volcanoes. At first, it's it just tells you make these great circles and look at what's under them, it seems to be said. Like, yeah, and it's only once you look that you go, wait a minute. These are overflying some of the biggest volcanoes, the meteor craters, and the ancient sites of the Earth. So it's almost on the map itself, you have just the pure uh, lingua franca, right, of animals that give you a rough sense of location mm -hmm. so that you can deduce the five exact spots and launch the great circles. And then it's one looking at the great circles that one yeah. has the realization of why would they draw these and but that's and, why i'm bringing up the fact that this is a universal language mathematics or whatever yes math and biology is is the language of yeah. the map but yeah. obviously if these uh, symbols these geoglyphs are animals uh, trees insects and whatever that's kind of like the key to where to go to, uh, different parts of the world. It's like, I want to go yeah, to... That's the language, right. That's the language. So that is a kind of a universal language. It is. If you ask me, yeah. that's as universal as I've ever found, except for math itself, because you're you're trying to tell them about the earth and you're going to use symbols that represent biota on the earth or specific yeah. things about the earth. Meaning, See, I love this idea. You know, I mean, you take it and you really begin you to... Know, did to you ever see the movie Memento? Uh, where the guy is tattooing his messages. Yes, on and that's, he, he has short-term memory loss. All right. Yeah, so he, or, yeah. There's times when I feel <laughs> that Nazca is, for our civilization, the same concept as memento, something that you leave tattooed in the skin of the earth, you as part of the earth, in order to remind yourself of something that occurred in the past that you cannot remember. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, I mean... Uh, it's beginning to feel more and more like Nazca was a calling card uh, of a previous civilization that wanted to, I'm not sure. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's like we're coming up to speed in the last uh, hundred years or since airplane flight to begin to recognize this, these uh, geoglyphs and these lines. Uh, and, We'll talk a little bit later about the message, but let's. Uh, why don't you give us some examples of where these lines connect to an ancient known city or megalith? Because you bring that up in your paper, how yes. the alignment in some areas is like 
bam, 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 bam. Exactly. It's like so exactly. accurate. There's one, there's one line in particular, which is the one that, that Jim Allison, right? Uh, that, ev- that everybody who bumps into it, however you bump into it, you, you note it and you can't forget it. Yeah. So on the map, it's actually the central line of the three that you use to anchor all the other ones, to, to measure out all the other ones. Okay. And it famously goes, right, on the map, it's, it says, go from Easter Island through the mouth of the Amazon at the equator. So you, you do that, and then you realize that the line basically then continues to go to Giza. Okay, so you're, you end up with a line that says, on this map, this line is important, right? And it happens to match a line that Jim Allison had found independently by when Encarta first came out, when we first had a program at home that we could make great circles around the earth. Mm-hmm. which was called Encarta before Google Google Maps, right? Oh, really? Right. He had realized that that these ancient sites of Easter Island, Saxquahaiman at Cusco, uh, Machu Picchu, the pyramids of Giza, the city of Petra, in the last Indiana Jones movie, mm, for those yeah. who don't no, know well. Petra, right? That carved into, hewn into the stone, right? The city of Persepolis, one of the oldest, if not the oldest place in, in Persia, in Iran. Ur and Eridu, right? In the region of Uruk. The first these, cities, a lot of these are places are pre-Diluvian. They're, pre, they're, they're, they're at the beginning of our history. They're, or pre-flood. They're the cradles, right. Yeah, the beginning they of our the current cradles, Right. Yeah. This is why we've called this line, you know, several things. We've called it the Cyclopean line because of the concept of the Cyclopean masonry, as if a cyclops were the only one that could move the stones that built these sites, or or the cradle line, right? Because so many cradles of civilization are on this line, okay? Uh, uh, it continues, right? It continues through Ur, Eridu, right? The cradles of Mesopotamia, Okay. Mohenjo-daro, cradle of the Indus Valley, Harappa, the other cradle of the Hindus Valley, right? And then through the temples of Angor Tum, uh, Preabihar, uh, Angor Wat, right? All of them in line, Sukhothai, right? Wow. The oldest capital of Thailand, right? All, and goes all the way back to Easter Island, all in one straight line. Now, each one of those sites has two things, if you ask me. One is that they are they tend to be geologic anomalies. For example, Easter Island is considered one of the, if not the most isolated island on earth. The Nazca Plateau is under that same line, driest place on earth, largest pictures ever drawn. Anomaly, anomaly, okay? Pyramid of Giza, largest monuments ever built at the mouth of the longest river. Anomaly, anomaly, okay? Angkor Wat, largest, temple complex ever built. So no building at Angkor Wat is as massive as the Pyramid of Cheops, but it is spread out as a complex over the largest area, anomaly, okay? Then you realize that the map shows you anomalies. For example, not only is it showing you our structural most ancient anomalies, most magnificent and ancient structures, but it's showing you the largest volcanoes on Earth and the largest meteor craters on Earth, to the point where at Chicxulub, for example, third largest impact that we know of, 
the one that took down the dinosaurs in the Yucatan, they bothered to use two lines. So not just under one great circle, but they triangulate upon it. Oh, the uh, the great right, uh, right. Oh. The bigger the bigger the yeah. thing, the more lines they draw to it. Hmm. Okay. Why do you think that is? Because they're trying to say, they're trying to strengthen the pattern. And because think of the map as, as their their way of pointing things out for you. They want they're trying to draw attention across time without knowing what language you speak, and say we're going to do it in a form of a map. And by putting these things, so for example, let me let me tell you something fascinating. The pyramid of Teotihuacan is under the single great circle that comes from Easter Island on the map. All the all the of the 83 lines on the map, only one of the lines comes from Easter Island, as if trying to draw attention, saying, pay attention to this line. We'll spread all the other 82 lines over the other four great uh, uh, locations. But from Easter Island, we want to show you just one. And so you make this great circle, and when you do it by angle, you go straight, as I show you in one picture, right, right past Teotihuacan. Now, not only do you go past Teotihuacan, but the avenue of the dead of Teotihuacan is aligned perfectly, almost parallel, just off by one and a half degrees from the path of the great circle, meaning that the oh. great circle and the avenue of the dead are the same thing exactly. They're, they're pointing. If you follow the avenue of the dead from Mexico, you will get to East Island. Hmm. So a line of the map is mirrored in the largest avenue of the largest pyramids or almost largest pyramids in the new world. Yeah. Right. And now here's the pattern that I want to point out. The Pyramid of Mexico, flat top and looking like a volcano, is in the middle of a volcanic field of some of the largest volcanoes on Earth, all of them on the ultra-volcano list. Yeah. And it's at latitude 19.5, which is also the latitude of the largest volcano and mountain on our planet called Hawaii. When measured from the bottom of the ocean, the king of all volcanoes is Hawaii happens to be at the same exact latitude as Teotihuacan, a flat top pyramid that's trying to tell you volcanoes, like the map is pointing out volcanoes. They're even mm. trying to point to you a latitude. They're trying to tell you that at the latitude of 19.5, you will find some of the largest volcanoes on earth. Trying to tell you something that's not that dissimilar from what Hoagland says when he talks about the tetrahedral forces. Oh yeah, that's his thing, yeah. Okay, that in a way, I found the concept at least, without spe me speculating on what it represents, that concept is ingrained in the pattern of ancient sites because Teotihuacan, a flat top volcanic pyramid, right? In the middle of a volcanic field is at the latitude of our largest volcano that's at 19.5. Okay, so let me ask you this. We have this map in the uh, Atacama Desert, the uh, Nazca Lines. What if somebody comes into the Earth's atmosphere and they're in another part of the world? Is there something they can use to punch into their computer? That's a, <laughs> I'm just going to say it, uh, that they can use as a guide? Well, if they don't have the way. symbology of the Nazca Lines, if they, where else, 
say that's the Star Trek, right? Say that the Enterprise yeah. arrives. Say the Enterprise yeah. arrives. If for some reason they they said, okay, analysis, planet of water with great dynamic, right, activity, yeah. right. Yeah. If they said, find anomaly and the computer place on Earth, right, it might show them Nazca or that region of the Atacama Desert as, you know, as an anomalous point relative to this planet. That would be the way you would find Nazca. If you say this planet is water and activity, where is it not water and where is there no activity? So are you saying that uh, somebody who comes on the other side of the planet, they're directed to, to the map? They Only if their ship, right? <laughs> we're, we're speculating here. That I'm speculating. If they got a spaceship like the Enterprise. You're uncomfortable with this, yeah. but I want you to work with me on it because I want to understand how they would use the map if they didn't come I, right I wouldn't think that they would need the map if they came from another star, but like meaning their their sensors would tell them everything about the planet and whatever. <laughs> the map the map is something you leave. Oh, I hear you. Yeah, they're, yeah. The map Star Trek. The okay. map is not something the ancients needed to use. The map is something that the ancients left for us to understand. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The ancients did not need to use the map. The the ancients made the map and left it along with these monumental sites. And even I think they left the mythic code that people find right in mythology, right? They left it so that it would endure all this time. And so that you and I could be having this awesome podcast talking about this crazy stuff. (laughs) Literally. I think that's why they did it. Like they wanted us 
in our present day to realize that they had left purposely this global message that we needed to understand that I myself am still trying to completely understand. I mean, so far I've got great circles. We've got meteors, volcanoes, and possibly things that we lost underwater and therefore a need to determine the, the causes for this. What really happened? Was it that meteor strike? How, how much was lost? Um, can this happen again? Uh, like all these questions that would come up once you know simply what we can, you know, uh, the NASCA group can only claim and challenge people to test that this is a map read like this. Yeah. And, you know, and I can tell you about the people or, or the beings that made it, say, only as much as I could prove to you, which is that to make such a map, you would need to know more than anyone thus far generally gives credit to, to, the, to the ancients. So along the yeah, lines it's beyond, of, it's right. beyond current science. Yeah. So I have an open mind. I don't really put a limit to how much these beings knew. Right. I simply know how, how much they must have at least known because to make such a map, to even build a pyramid, right? Like you couldn't, you know, it's been shown that it's just would be very difficult to do this with copper drills, even if they have a little bit of action. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, yeah, with, with co- yeah, with copper chisels, even with a and, and, and wood mallets. Yeah, yeah, and, um, yeah. Let's talk about something you just brought up, which is the possibility of a great seafaring civilization being lost. Do the lines uh, intersect with uh, any of the locations that Plato uh, described where Atlantis would have been? Well, put it this way. The fact that that line, for example, that I told you goes from Easter Island to Teotihuacan. Yeah. And it's what I call the volcanic line because Easter Island itself is a volcanic island. It goes through Teotihuacan, which I just described as being flat topped as a, as a volcano indicator. That line ends up going through Mount Erebus in Antarctica by McMurdo Station. Mount Erebus is also one of the largest volcanoes on the planet, and it's sitting right on the edge of the Antarctic ice shelf. Mm -hmm. And that's the Ross ice shelf, which is the largest piece of ice on the planet on a downslope with a volcano at the end, which seems like a very precarious situation, if you ask me. And the map seems to be indicating it. Now, what I'm trying to say is that these people even added to the map Antarctica and its dangers. They were global, but so far, I can't guess from the map as to if they're trying to tell me by the fact that they knew the whole world. It doesn't seem to yet indicate clearly that something on the map is their homeland, is what I'm so trying to say. Yeah. They may be suggesting that the Antarctica at one time was the right. home of the What they country. seem to be indicating is that the stories that the locals of the Andes tell that these strangers camped out at Tiwanaku and they would come down to build, to do things, to do the works in the Andes, right? That is apparently a, a local story. And by the fact that at Tiwanaku, this very high place, you would be very hidden and you have the whole region, right, to drop down upon. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it's the central radial center of the map, 
one might speculate that at least while they were doing the map, that might have been their central campground. But I would not go as far as saying that that was their lost city from before. What, you know, what Hard you to would, say. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't say that it's what you would call your Atlantis. Well, that's I what I wanted say- to ask you, um, Frank, is that do the lines uh, intersect with the area known as Atlantis and the Atlantic Ocean? Uh, I think if what, uh, Straits of Gibraltar off of uh, Spain or something. Okay, so, the- so here's what's fascinating. Yeah. So in part three of the geoglyphic code where we follow the lines to where a glyph is, mm-hmm. we go to the three-dimensional globe of Google Earth with that line, and we look underwater, right? So if you were to open uh, my webpage as you talk, right, the uh, nascasolution.com, mm-hmm. right, if you can, um, Let's let's talk about it because yeah. Uh, so and and if you go to um to the geoglyphic code and scroll down to see some pictures as I, as I talk, then what ends up happening is you will see these glyphs projected on the bathymetry, meaning on the underwater terrain. Mm-hmm. There's one that's famous that's called the parrot, right? I don't think it's a parrot. I think it represents a type of ant. Okay, Mm -hmm. but nonetheless, it goes right at the mouth of Gibraltar. Ah, and right. And then you will see how that weird lobe that the parrot has. So the geoglyph of this ant that they call a parrot has these two little pincers by the head. And then it's got this weird lobe that comes down. Well, when you put the parrot right over Gibraltar, its little neck becomes the straits. You kind of see the pincer formations underwater. And that lobe is the coast of Morocco, the shallow shelf off of the coast of Morocco. So that might have been the 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 land base of Atlantis, right? Or or I I myself and the NASA group in general, we don't sit there looking for Atlantis, single city, single lost place. We see this map as trying to show us all the lost locations of all the the peoples that were known. You see what I'm saying? Like it's showing you the changes on earth where you might find different civilizations in that shallow. So for sure, they're saying that that land that this glyph over over matches used to be dry land is a, mm. it would be a safe hypothesis to, to, you know, to propose based on, on what they're showing you. Yeah. And, and, and also, yeah, go ahead. Now, there's one more place that's just as interesting as that for people to go look to see what can be found off that shelf, right? And by the way, that shelf is where the Canary Islands are, you know, where right now they're, the volcano is going off, okay? So um, that um, there's a place in the middle of the Mediterranean. And in Underworld, Graham Hancock published a small picture of a map drawn by Ptolemy that had an anomalous island that he called the the ghost island or or something like the phantom island this is because ptolemy was a famous cartographer of the ancient world who drew many times the swimming pool known as the mediterranean that was so well traveled and not very big that without complex mathematics you could make accurate maps of it of the mediterranean right even in the old days yeah in one of these maps, and only one, Ptolemy draws an island that is not there, 
meaning it doesn't exist neither in any of his other old maps, nor has anyone ever seen that island on a map, nor has it ever shown up again on a map of Ptolemy or anyone else's. Mm -hmm. The Nazca map shows a glyph right at that location, matching, imagine, a map of Ptolemy. Yeah. Right? Suggesting that right there and so the geoglyphic code part of the work, I show a picture of that glyph they call the ant I call the anteater because it's an upside down anteater, and there are anteaters in northern Africa, but this is of course out in the water. Mm -hmm. And there's that same peculiar shape of the anteater, strange, weird beak-like creature, as a very starkly outlined underwater formation right at that location that is just off the coast of Malta, where you have the sites of the Giganteum, the giant hewn, right, temples of Malta, right? That place where those tracks are seen on the surface. That yeah. What are those tracks for? Very okay. odd. Apparently this island, Malta would be its westernmost end. Wow. So this is, so the Nazca map is showing you a location that's rather small, rather specific, saying this used to be exposed and we want you to look right here. Now, what is right there? I don't know. Hypothesis. A metropolis in the middle of the Mediterranean, similar in style to Gobleki Tepe and Malta, these yeah. of this ancient stone masonry or what? So in part, you know, we want to get everyone excited that by having the map, you can go look at specific locations that might that it might truly be trying to indicate, go, go look here, such as the one I just described. But also in general, say you're using LIDAR to look for sites in the Sahara yeah. or sites in the Amazon, and you want to try to narrow down your search, I would strongly, we of the Nazca group, strongly recommend tracking the map, the, the great circles of the Nazca map, if in doubt, and you're just going to go randomly to see if you can find something that you've never noticed, I'm willing to bet that as new discoveries are made, just like the experience we had for years was that whenever we would hear about a new site, I would throw it on the 3D map and boom, there it was over 90%. I may have never heard of the place, right? It's the first time I had heard of this or of that or of this uh, uh, dolmen or of this stone circle. You throw it on, bam, there it is. I'm willing to bet that that pattern continues and that it's also left for us to use it like a treasure map to enhance our probabilities of making an archaeological find. The implications of this are uh, mind-blowing because we could do uh, follow-ups and you could write software applications to follow the the. Uh, the survey and and God knows what you can turn up. My guest today has been uh, Frank uh, Magnaloni. He is the uh, one of the team members of the the great uh, the NASA Great Circle Map Hypothesis. Uh, how can people learn more about your work, uh, Frank? Give us your website. So that is www.nascasolution all one word dot com, but NASCA with a Z, not with an S. With a Z, right. Yeah, so nascasolution.com. 
we've got a couple little toys there. We're planning a revamp to make it even more visually appealing, but we've got a virtual map, which is the great circles, but over Google Earth. Okay. So even though you see the great circles, not as circles, but as sine waves, it is highly accurate, right? Once you zoom in and you have full Google Earth resolution, thank you, Google, right? right? To uh, explore what the shallows of the seas under the lines or whatnot, right? For people to just explore. Then we got a little one called the virtual Earth, which you can spin around and it's basically the entire globe with the great circle pattern. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, we plan on be putting more stuff out there soon, such as uh, more glyphs and how they project over underwater bathymetry, right? Uh, suggesting that these are sunken lands, right? Um, because we definitely want people to get excited and explore using the map if it helps them to see if we find what's left to be found out there. Yeah, I think you have some uh, exciting research and real, real eye-opening uh, data here. Um, if I were to, if I were to ask you, what would be uh, another significant find that you would like to make based on your research as we continue, as we close here today? Because uh, we, we could talk about this for hours, and we're getting we're over our time. What would you say would be a significant discovery that you would say, "Aha! They left this marker. They left this." Uh, megalith uh, as a uh, a symbol of their uh, technological prowess of technology hmm. well let's let's okay now this is pure speculation but uh, assuming that you know one notices that it's true that one notices that for example there's those places where Apparently, metal ingots were supposed to go, say, in Tiwanaku. Oh, the whole two right? blocks of stone right. together. Yeah. Right. And yet you you find no iron. You find no, right, no signs of technology that more approximates what we call modern iron age and above. Right. Yeah. And so let's assume then that that it's true that that they were not interested in us getting the technology of the things they knew ahead of time, that they built these things and then took their machines or right and whatever they used with them so that right there may right just because you like me to speculate i'll do it for you there may be in places that are very absurd right like uh, under the great circles in antarctica or somewhere else uh caches perhaps that we're going to find hopefully right because of the map or just by mere chance that that you know that are examples of their sextants their measuring instruments their the actual task right the actual task of building a pyramid in whatever form you know i mean part of my mind you know does always fantasize that this will lead to just an accumulation of so much absurd proof such as even that right material proof right yeah uh uh, that it that it that it just enhances the confession that the map already represents. You know, Wonderful. like yeah, because to us the map represents a form of confession already. That yes, we did do this, and but you're right. You're still left with the how did you do this, <laughs> <laughs> and you by know? what with what yeah. technology? Yeah, yeah, and we you know we just try. We just don't like to speculate. Too I much. totally get it. You know, you're like you want to. But you, you leave know, it open. Wanna, you leave it yeah, open. We want to convince all the people who who think this is just 
outrageous. We're trying to say we have an outrageous proof, right? Scientific yeah. proof that this is so. And then, you know, there'll be more uh, speculating, which is fine with me, but we, we yeah. kind of have to stay, you know, legit over you here. You want to use the scientific time. method as we much as possible. We don't want to scare anybody who thinks something that they hear from my mouth is so absurd in its speculative speculation yeah. that then it turns them away from the fact that we want to say, no, we, we want the world to agree that this is a map, you yeah. know, from the point of view of science. And then once that's accepted, then, you know, I will be the first to speculate with you. Right. Frank, we're going to have to have you back uh, when you have more data on this amazing discovery and uh, uh, much success, continued success with this. And um, uh, for those of you listening, Frank has generously provided with uh, us uh, a whole series of images uh, from his website that we'll have on the Facebook page. Uh, and so go to Earth Ancient, excuse me, go to Facebook, go to Earth Ancient's group page, and you'll see the NASCA Great Circle Map Hypothesis Gallery that Frank has generously provided. So, Jay, uh, Frank, continued success. And like I said, we'll have to have you back when you get some more data. Thank you, Cliff. I'm looking forward to it and be well, my friend. Thank you for the opportunity. Frank has sent me a small gallery of photographs uh, of the Nazca line map, its connection to some of the ancient places uh, on the planet, and some other interesting graphics that are included in his article that uh, appeared in Graham Hancock's website. So you can check that out on Earth Ancients Facebook page. Go to Facebook, Earth Ancients, and go to the group page. I'm not going to post it on the international page. It's the group page, and you will see his photograph, Frank's photograph, uh, with the Nazca background, and then below it will be the small gallery. So it'll kind of help drive the point that they're making to you and kind of cl uh, clarify a little bit. I, I mentioned it offline or after our interview that he's got to have a book there and they're actually working on a book. So, I mean, it makes a lot more sense to get the details out in a book than a simple podcast because there's a lot of concepts that don't fly. So I hope you enjoyed that. That's our first Nazca line <laughs> interview. Going to have to have... Um, some shaman and some uh, native elders that are in that part of the world who speak good English come on the program. And I know of a couple, so we'll have to continue this, uh, this theme of uh, the Nazca controversy, or as I call it in the program, the Nazca line enigma. Hey, we have an amazing tour coming up next year, May 3rd through the 15th. We're going to be back in Egypt for our Grand Egyptian Tour number three, and we number them because each one is unique. Each one has new sites we visit, and also uh, all kinds of great material is added to the itinerary. This is not to be missed, and it's a beautiful tour. It's a VIP tour. In fact, we actually call it, or I have named it, <laughs> a diplomatic tour. Why? Because each of you who attends is treated not only like uh, a dignitary from a foreign country, you are treated as a VIP member of the tour. And uh, we'll be going to the Great Pyramid. We'll be going to the Sphinx. We're going to Saqqara, going to see this underground labyrinth. 
and it's all lit perfectly. It's beautiful what they've done to this uh, Saqqara area, the Dujor Pyramid, and uh, it's great. It's an amazing tour. For more information, go to earthancients.com forward slash tours, T-O-U-R with the S. Take a look at the itinerary and get your deposit in. Now, this is, uh, not only is it a world-class tour, if you if you take a look and do a search for Egypt tours, it's a group you get stuck in with all kinds of other public. Our tours are, for the most part, private. We don't engage with the public. Uh, we have our own bodyguard. It is amazing. You are VIP member of Earth Ancients Tours. And what makes this tour almost uh, unforgettable is the fact that it is discounted for Earth Engines audience members of close to 40%. It's unheard of. Unheard of. Hundreds of dollars are deducted off the cost of this tour because we want everybody who can join us get on board and register. So check it out. May 3rd through the 15th. It is going to be a blast uh, and you will not want to miss it. For more information, again, go to earthancients.com forward slash tours and check it out hey as a reminder uh we got the big guns lined up for the fall we're into the fall with october november december uh we have a special presentation with eric van donigan or ish van dyken will be joining us in december followed by randall carlson and then we close out the year with uh, our favorite presenter and author that's graham hancock We'll finish the year uh, on Saturday, December 23rd. So don't forget, mark your calendars. December is hot. It is the best of the best of the best. Live from San Francisco with uh, these people, Hancock, Carlson, Findankin. November is pretty good, too. We got uh, some amazing people coming up in November. Among them is this former NASA astronomer who is going to blow you away with on what he presents regarding image modification which means that anything that comes off of a satellite or rover is modified before we see it and i've been talking about this forever now we have the proof and then uh this uh, astronomer also presents his own personal exploration in sightings of unidentified uh, flying objects, or as NASA has rebranded the phenomenon, unidentified aerial phenomenon. And we're going to hear from him and his uh, sightings and what he has encountered uh, from the men in black. That's coming up real, real soon. That's in November. Lots of other good stuff. As always, uh, Earth Ancients is your home for the best of the best ancient history. Uh, unknown artifacts and uh, unknown and known civilizations. So don't forget, mark your calendar for the fall. All right, that's it for this edition of Earth Ancients. I want to thank my guest, Frank Nicholson. As always, our team, Bruce Fenton in London, Ruth Thomas in British Columbia, Canada, and all of our editors and artists around the world. You guys rock. Thank you for making Earth Ancients and destiny, what they are. Take care, be well, we'll talk to you next time.
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. I came from a low-income family that was that was struggling. You see how hard life can get. GCE became a part of my life because I don't want my family to fall back into that. I never thought education would take me this far. I'm still young. I still have a lot to do in my life and just want to get things done the way I want with a good education under me. I'm Stacy, and Grand Canyon University helped me find my purpose.